My guest today manages a huge sum of money. Huge. It's not revealed how much, but he's a portfolio manager of a value investing focused fund. Let's find out what does value investing mean to him and why he's taking a big shift from deep value investing like banks and property to growth stocks. There was an aha moment for him and he decided to change his strategy. What caused the transition? What can retail investors learn from this change in perspective? What stood out for me is his way of thinking, especially when he shared about how you can position yourself such that heads or tails, you still win. Sounds too good? You'll hear how it works with examples. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chill with TFC episode. In this series, we talk to interesting people with relevant experience and insights to help us learn from their perspectives so that we can create the life we love and manage our finances as well. My guest today is a portfolio manager of an investment fund based in Singapore with more than 10 years of experience. Let's hear from T-Ling. Hello, T-Ling. Tell us about your role. Tell us about your investment fund, the fund that you manage, and what are your objectives? Hi, Andrew. Um, so essentially, the fund, um, which is actually called Heritage Global Capital Fund, uh, is a long-only value-based fund in Singapore. The objective is honestly just, you know, helping people, you know, helping investors make better decisions. Um, not only do we want to help people, you know, have a return on capital, but main thing is also the return off capital. And that's the main objective of the fund. And of course, the easy way to put it is that uh, the main objective of the fund is to make money, right? Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to make money. <laughs> but it also depends, um, are you pursuing a more aggressive strategy so you're able to take more risk or is it more of capital preservation? If we define it a little bit further, how would you describe your objectives in this case? So I guess, you know, um, risk is something which is very relative. To some people, what is risky could be like cryptocurrencies or maybe to some people, you know, even cryptocurrencies is something safe. They, they feel that they actually understand it. It's not that risky. As compared to myself, I don't actually understand cryptocurrency. To me, cryptocurrency is highly volatile, highly risky. Um, stocks and all, it's something which I deem to be safer. But of course, there will be people, you know, who even feel that stocks is risky. So ultimately, it's about, you know, the circle of competence. What do you actually understand? And to people who, like myself, who understand stocks, I feel that stocks is not something risky. Um, and you can actually generate a decent kind of return, 10 to 15% compounded annual growth rates. Um, but it really depends on who you actually ask. Um, yeah. Right. So it depends on how you define risk and what they call it, circle of competence or what yeah. game are you trying to play in this case. Perhaps crypto is not your game yet. We, we don't know in the future, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, at, at one point, you know, uh, and that's the interesting thing about investing, I find. It's a lifelong journey. When I first started out this journey, it was not invested the same way I'm actually invested now. The strategy has shifted over the years simply because our experience, you know, over the years has also been growing. We are learning new things and we constantly, you know, push these boundaries of what we actually understand. We keep on trying to expand our circle of competence to other things that we don't actually understand. And that, that's the interesting about, thing about in, investing, you know, it's a lifelong journey. You keep on learning. Okay, so tell us about your personal investing philosophy and how does that apply to the fund that you are managing right now? So in terms of the philosophy, it's always about investing in stuff that we actually understand. 
But ultimately to me, it's about taking a ownership of a business. And this business has to be something that I feel passionately about, that I really understand the business, that it makes sense to me, that it's actually really adding value to people's life. And that's the reason why there is a value for this company to still actually be around. Um, to me, that's the most important thing. You know, I mean, this has been said many times. You know, investing is not just pieces of paper. You're actually taking ownership of the business. But how many people actually practice it? Um, and to me, it's if the company has to be part of my portfolio, I have to actually feel proud about it. You know, when I look at a portfolio, I want to have this sense of satisfaction, this sense of happiness that I'm proud that, hey, you know, this company is a company that I'm willing to say and tell people that I am actually invested in this business. Okay, so the past two years has been about COVID. How has that shifted your investing strategies? So pre-COVID, our strategy is what most investors today would be calling them value investing, really investing in traditional value companies. For example, the sectors are like your banking sector, your property developers, your property landlords. But because of COVID, we could actually see the impact on these sectors, you know, your property landlords, your property developers and all. And we reached this point where we realized that, hey, you know, we have to actually shift away from these sectors to more what people like to call growth um, companies today. You know, these technology companies. And that's how we actually shifted from value investing to growth investing. I don't like to put meaning to these kind of terms, but I guess for, for the audience to actually understand easier, um, it's we have shifted from value investing to actually growth investing from what we call deep value investing, the capital cycles, property cycles, credit cycles and all to more growth companies, growth industries, which is more on secular tailwinds, uh, the S adoption curves and all. I like how you preface it with uh, what people like to call value investing, <laughs> open inverted commas, and what people like to call growth investing. Because like you mentioned, risk is also depends on personal definition, right? Yeah. So how would you define value investing? How would you define growth investing? To me, it's just all value investing. It's all value investing to you. Yeah, right. I mean, it's really dependent on how you define value, right? I mean, I told a lot of people, you know, to our grandfathers, what could be of value to them back then, you know, that was maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, what is considered of value, it's properties, the banks, what we call more traditional value uh, industries. But in today's context, value has shifted. To the younger generation, value is no longer what it is of the past. And I mean, to give you a simple example, when I was going through you know, my secondary school days, my JC days and all, I love playing computer games. I played World of Warcraft and all that. And... To my mom, she'll always be saying, you know, you play so much games, it'll bring you nowhere, you'll no make value. no money. You know, there's no value, <laughs> there's yes. No value in playing but if you games. look at these computer games today, the total addressable market of, you know, the esports the industry yeah, is so space. huge. People could be making millions of dollars just by playing games. And value is just changing. What our, our parents, our grandparents define as value has actually shifted. And I mean few generations down, naturally value will keep shifting. So it's just a moving goalpost. Uh, and to me, everything is value investing as long as logical. And it really depends on how you actually want to define this value. Mm, so your, your lens of looking at value and growth is, is different. But to, to make it easier for people to understand, so that's how you describe your yeah. investing strategies, right? the change which is from value investing, like banks, property, to more of growth investing, which I assume would be tech stocks and what else? What do you consider to be growth? 
Um, and then tech stocks, you have to define also because everything is yeah, tech because nowadays. There, there's so much tech. But you know, right. once again, you know, it's what what's the meaning of technology? Hmm. People think of technology today, it's artificial intelligence, EVs, autonomous driving, etc., etc. But technology, even lights, electrical lights, at one point in time was technology. Just because that when we were born, this technology is already around, does it mean that it's not technology at one point in time? And so that's why, you know, everything can actually be considered technology. I, I mean, we, I'm a student of history. I really like looking at history. And if you go all the way back to 1800s, we had technology back then as well, you know, from canal transportation to railroad transportation to airline transportation, from gas lighting to electrical lighting, horseback carriages to cars, cars, to EV cars now. That's all technology. It's just that we have actually been shifting. Um, what's considered technology in the past doesn't mean that it's not technology. Okay, so let, let's peel off the surface in order to understand it better. Since we really understand that, okay, this is how you see technology, this is how you see value, this is how you see growth, right? So last time before COVID, what were you mostly focused on? And after COVID, what did you focus on? And what caused the change? Let's go into the details. So pre-COVID, we were really just more focused on, you know, your banking sector, property developers, your property landlords. These were the kind of industries that we were more focused in. But post-COVID, we are obviously not looking at these sectors anymore. Um, these are more cyclical sectors. We are looking at more secular sectors. Um, stuff that we can see a longer time horizon that is more on a secular shift. Over the next three to five years, we think that it's actually still going to be growing I mean, like you said, technology is a very, very broad term to it. Um, but if we have to actually drive deeper into different verticals, there will be the digital payment side of things, your e-commerce, your buy now, pay laters. So that these are to just give you a, uh, some names of you know the things that we are actually looking at. Um, these are the kind of sectors that we are actually looking at. Not to say that we completely um, avoid traditional sectors, but you know, if there are traditional sectors that are doing things really, really well. You know, they might be traditional in that sense. But if the business is performing really well, they are adapting to these kind of changes, they're incorporating technology into their workflows to make things more efficient. For example, F&B is a very, very traditional sector. It has been around for the longest period of time. Let's put it this way. Names like Haiti Lao and all. But they are actually incorporating technology into the business, you know, how to make operating costs lower by introducing technology and all. So we are also looking at these sectors, but of course they must be, you know, having some uh, technology aspect whereby they are trying to actually bring down costs and all. Uh, but it's not to say that we just completely avoid investing in anything that is traditional or anything that is old. Mm, so we've got some examples of what you used to be looking at and what you are looking at ahead in, in the future. So what caused the shift in between? How, how did COVID impact the way you think about it? So what we actually saw during COVID, and this was actually during the COVID two-month lockdown in Singapore, I was actually attending the three banks' AGMs. And the banks' AGMs, essentially, the managements were all talking about the same thing, that because of the COVID lockdown, it has shifted a lot of their customers to go digital everyone was actually performing their transactions online because we can't go out. You know, branches was actually closed down. People were just forced to actually make their transactions online. And because people were just being shifted and forced online, the banks were essentially saying that they had to actually rethink their branch strategy. Why do we need so many branches now when most of our customers are actually online? 
So you think about it, you know, it's supply and demand. Supply of retail space is going to be fairly constant. It's not like overnight Ion will disappear, Wisma will disappear or what. So supply is going to be fairly fixed. But demand has changed drastically. It has shifted downwards drastically and this is a fundamental shift. It's not something that's temporal. After this COVID lockdown, this demand is not going to come back in some sense. You see that the change in behavior due to COVID will persist. Yes. We're we're moving online and we won't go back. No no one wants to go backwards. You know, if I ask you to go back to 10, 20 years ago where we were still using VCRs to, you know, when we go for a meeting, we might have to put this tape in and record our show so that we can come back and watch it. No one wants to go backwards. Everyone has been so used to Netflix now. Some people might still want to go back to the branches, but by and large, most people will actually have overcome that initial hurdle to actually go online. And the banks are actually rethinking their branch strategy, essentially. So supply and demand. Supply is going to be fairly fixed. Demand have actually shifted down quite fundamentally and maybe quite permanently as well. So economics 101, supply and demand. If supply is fixed, demand is coming off. Naturally, it means that new fair rental rate is shifting downwards and this is a fundamental shift downwards. And if you think about it, valuations of these property landlords, it's a function of ROE. And ROE is derived from your rental rates. If rental rates are fundamentally shifted downwards, it means your ROEs, that new fair ROEs of property landlords is shifted downwards as well. And naturally, it means your valuations has a fundamental shift downwards. So that was the reason why it became a hard moment for us, you know, that, hey, you know, this is going to be what ha- what's going to happen to the, our portfolio companies over the next five years. The reason why we didn't see this, and I mean, it, it could be a mistake on our part, that, you know, companies on a year-to-year time frame, you don't realize that it changes much. It's like watching grass grow. Grass doesn't grow that much over a day-to-day time frame. But because COVID accelerated all these shifts, you could actually see what was going to happen five years down the road. And, and it's quite a scary thing. You're like, hey, you know, this is going to be what's happening to these companies. It's becoming more and more obsolete. And that's the reason why we actually shifted away from all these traditional businesses. So we're looking at retail property, for example. And Especially retail property. Right, because you gave the example of e-commerce as well. So e-commerce yeah. is the new direction that you'll be looking at. Yeah, I mean, you know, pre-COVID, my parents, my in-laws, they're very skeptical when it comes to e-commerce. You know, shopping on Taobao, right. buying groceries on Redmart. To my mom, she likes going down to the wet market, picking out the meat, the vegetables, having this relationship with these people selling these kind of produce. And she can see it for herself. She knows that, okay, I'm buying fresh meat, the vegetables, they are fresh and all. Or, you know, shopping on Taobao is coming from China. There's all this um, negative thinking that, hey, you know, maybe the quality is a bit more inferior. Why do I go and do that when I can easily go to a shopping mall and just buy the things that I need? But because of the COVID lockdown, they were forced to change. They were forced to actually try out, you know, going using Red Mart, um, thinking that maybe the produce on Red Mart is not as fresh. Or they had to try out using Taobao, thinking that the, that the products is of an inferior quality. But that was all disproved when these things arrived. And you, you realize, hey, you know, these things were not what I thought it out to be. Products from Taobao is actually quite good quality. Red Mart, it's not bad as well. And makes your life so much easier. You don't have to lug all this, you know, meat, uh, vegetables, um, household goods, necessities and all back home. People actually deliver it right to your doorstep. And these shifts have actually persisted. Even post-COVID, 
my parents, my in-laws are actually shopping more um, on e-commerce. Not to say that they don't go back to their wet markets or they don't go to the shopping malls, but the behavior, they are not as negative to, to actually shop on these online platforms anymore. Yeah, back then, even putting in your credit card information online is unthinkable, right? Yeah. But right now, I, I don't know how many websites have my credit card information already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so these are the what traditional with open inverted commerce or value stocks that you used to be looking at and COVID, well, we're already on this path of change just that COVID accelerated it. Yes. And you have this aha moment and now you're looking at so-called open inverted commerce once again, growth stocks <laughs> yes. and growth industries. You mentioned a few examples just now like e-commerce, buy now, pay later. So let's go into that. What are you looking at right now? Um, I, I think one thing that really excites me now is really other than, you know, the whole China regulatory uh, crackdown to me, China is really, really exciting now uh, to be investing in China. Um, but uh, for your audience to, to, to actually benefit more, because I understand that a lot of Singaporeans are quite negative on China as well. One industry that I really like now is actually the buy now, pay later industry, otherwise known as BNPL. In Singapore, we are still in, in its infancy stages. Um, it's not as mature as compared to Australia and US. And that's one industry that really excites me. It's creating this new way to actually make payments. It's actually because of a shift in spending mindsets um, across the different generations as well. And I, I thought that's really, really interesting. Well, isn't it just a monthly installment plans? I'm deliberately asking it this way, in a more provocative manner. Like, isn't it just monthly installment plans that we used to have that last time anyway? You, you, you do. I mean, I, I do know that, you know, Harvey Norman, Best Denki and all that do offer these kind of installment plans when you buy you know, electronic goods. But, you know, these buy now, pay later platforms is not solely for... So, I mean, think about it. Harvey Norman, you can only have installment plans for products in Harvey Norman. But these buy now, pay later platforms, it's for all merchants that is actually on their platform. Brands like Lululemon, ASOS, JD, Reformation, etc. You can actually be doing buy now, pay later, or otherwise what you call installments on all these different brands as long as they are actually on the buy now, pay later platform. Mm. What, what I see is that it will cause spending to go up because now people are more willing to spend, so to speak, because they, they see their outflow every month is more manageable. Well, they get to manage their cash flow in this case. Yes. Right? And, and so we brought up China together with buy now, pay later. We understand that BNPL, or it's more started in the US, in Singapore, is still in its infancy, like I mentioned. But how's BNPL doing in China? Um, I don't actually see buy now, pay later in China. What's exciting me about China is really the regulatory crackdown on how on all these technology companies, real estate companies. But the question is, does it mean that China doesn't want technology companies to exist? Does it mean that China doesn't want real estate companies to exist? That's not the case. There will always be higher quality companies that have been sold down as well. Essentially, people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater and to me, it's about finding the babies, you know, finding these gems that I feel that it has been misunderstood. People have just been panicking, letting their emotions get ahead of them and just selling down every single thing. And that's what excites me about China. And, you know, Warren Buffett always talks about he wants to see blood on the streets. Mm. And to me, you know, where can you really find with so much negativity, so much pessimism, other than China now, where everyone is so pessimistic about China, the prospects of China, people are even talking about, you know, maybe President Xi is power hungry. He, he's this emperor who actually is essentially wants to abolish all these private companies, nationalize them. Sure, 
it's not a zero probability event, but is that what he's planning? I, I mean, we would never know. We can only know after the dust settled a few years down the road. But if you think about it logically, what China has been trying to achieve over the last 10, 20 years, I don't think China wants to just nationalize all these um, great companies, these technology companies within China, because these are the, the, the goose that lays that golden egg. To, to nationalize them is to kill off that, that main source of how they can actually compete with US in terms of the technology war. If they really go down that path, sure, you know, they will have lost that tech war with US. But the China that I understand, and I go to China quite often, that's not what they are trying to achieve. And China, you know, has improved themselves tremendously. No matter how you slice it, whether it's a three-year time frame, five-year time frame, 10-year time frame, 15-year time frame, or even longer, the people in China have actually been happy. You know, even with all these new... Um, crackdowns, regulatory um, crackdowns and all, people are actually getting happier and happier. Living standards has actually been improving. As compared to the same time frame, if we actually apply it to developed markets, like let's say, for example, Singapore, can we honestly say that we have actually enjoyed as much changes? Have our happiness level actually gone up as much? Um, the, the easiest example I always share is that during primary school, for myself, I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm born in 1991, in primary school, we had these exchange programs to China. And back then, friends coming back from these exchange programs would tell us, hey, you know, don't go for it. It's horrible. If you do somehow go for it because your parents um, forces you to actually go for it, do bring umbrellas. Because, you know, going to the toilets there, there is no toilet doors. You have to use the umbrella to give yourself some privacy. This was the impression of China I had back then. And, you know, I've gone back to China quite often, especially after 2014. I, I stayed in Shanghai for three months in 2014. And subsequently, I've gone back every one year or so. And even from a one-year time frame, things are shifting. In 2014, when I was actually staying in Shanghai, I could go around using cash, make payments and all that kind of stuff. I brought my wife back in 2019 um, to Shanghai, same places. And they were telling me that, you know, I, I don't want your cash. If you don't have WePay, you don't have Alipay, it's okay. You can just bring your business elsewhere. And, and so much has changed in China over a small time frame. If you apply that same time frame in Singapore, honestly, nothing much has actually changed. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Although you mentioned that you know, some Singaporeans might not like China stuff. So it really depends on who you're talking to and what media are looking at. Are you looking at Western media or yeah. other media, local media, Chinese media? So China, that's interesting. But from your point of view, what I'm hearing is that because we're talking about growth, right? And you see that there's blood on the streets right now and therefore there's room for growth. Uh, it's not just room for growth. There are already growth companies in China. You know, Alibaba, Tencent, JD, Meituan. Um, these are all growth companies or what most people call them growth companies. But at the same time, the valuations are trading at distress levels. That's what I'm trying to say that not only are you investing in growth companies, you are getting a bargain for them. 
as compared to if you're investing in growth companies in the US, you still have to pay up maybe for a premium for such companies. Um, that, that's why I, I am very, very excited with China. But of course, you know, discussing about China, we, we can discuss till the counts come home. And honestly, we will still have no conclusion because whatever I have heard on the other side, it's also valid points. It's not that it's completely illogical. There is some meat there, but the only real conclusion we can really get is only a few years down the road um, to actually see how these companies have performed, how the government's actions have actually translated to whatever impact it is to the economy. And you know, this term, China is uninvestable. Whether is it three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, I have actually been hearing people say China is uninvestable because of whatever reason it is. The reasons keep changing. In the past, it's because of the shadow banking peer-to-peer lending, uh, the VIE structures. Today, it's about technology crackdown, ceasing ping and all that kind of stuff. The risk is shifting. But over the same time frame, you know, where people say that China is uninvestable, if you look at these share prices of these companies, you would actually still have made money. And, and that, that's what I mean. Hmm. So that's China. What other opportunities for growth do you see? other industries, other verticals, or even specific companies that you're looking at? There's many great companies in different countries. For us, we are mainly invested in US and China. Um, China, which is through Hong Kong. Because these two markets, they are two markets which most people actually focus on. Of course, you can be looking at other countries, other geographies, like UK, Japan, Australia. And you can actually still find great companies there, growth companies, so to speak. So earlier on, you also mentioned about credit cycles, property cycles, and how it affects the markets, right? Could you tell us a bit more about that? What should I look out for when looking at all these cycles and how it affects the stocks that I'm investing in? Um, So looking at cycles is really for the more traditional businesses um, because they actually follow a cycle. These are cyclical companies Mm -hmm. as compared to growth companies being more secular. Could you help define secular for us? So secular is really, you know, whereby is this S adoption curve. Um, let's say, for example, five, ten years ago, um, when Netflix was first started out, that's a secular shift whereby no matter what happens, whether there's a recession or whatnot, people will still want to actually get, sign up for Netflix. That's a secular shift as compared to a cyclical shift, which is like a property uh, developer. If a recession happens, people feel poorer. You will not actually want to buy more properties and these property developers will actually be affected by these cyclical downturns. Um, So that's the difference between cyclical and secular. So I mean, if you're really looking at the more traditional businesses, like let's say, for example, your properties, your property sector, your property developers, people focus too much on demand when you should actually be focusing more on supply. Because like I said, supply doesn't change that fast. Supply takes time to change. If you want to increase supply, you have to, in in the case of properties, if you want to increase the supply of property, you actually have to go through that whole process of buying a piece of land, discussing with architects, contractors and all to build whatever you want to build on this piece of land. And it will take about three to four years before the supply actually hits the market. And that's why supply doesn't change that quickly. As compared to demand, Demand can change instantaneously. Whether it's because of a change in taste and preferences, because of a change in government policy, demand can just change instantaneously. That's what we actually saw in COVID. And hence, that's the reason why people, 
you know, if you read analyst reports and all that, they always like to forecast where demand is going to be. But there is no way to forecast demand because that's essentially saying that I know that maybe some government policy will come out. Maybe and in some ways, it's like who could have forecasted COVID will actually happen. So there's no way that you can actually forecast demand, but you can actually forecast supply because supply takes time to come online. And that, that's what I'm essentially trying to say. You know, if you see that, let's say, for example, in 2016, which was the property slowdown in Singapore, we knew that we were in a slowdown. But when does this slowdown hit that, that bottom? And the only way we can actually hit, see that it hits the bottom is when we see property supply start slowing down. And this is something that we could be forecasted. So I think this was it back in 2016. And we were looking at the property supply figures in Singapore. And we could actually see that the supply figures from 2018 would actually start petering off all the way till 2019, 2020, where supply actually gets cut by 50%. So we knew that, hey, you know, it's a good time to be investing in the property sector now. It's not that uh, winter is over, but spring might be coming soon. So, so that, that's how we would actually approach um, looking at property cycles, credit cycles and all. I think it's interesting we're looking at two different things. Not that one is better than the other, but on one hand, we have the, once again, open, open inverted commas, traditional or value kind of stocks. And then on the other hand, the, the growth stocks. And you're looking at market cycles that will affect more of the traditional industries, but for the, the high growth tech companies, causing a circular change within the market itself. And therefore, you know, all these cycles might not even be relevant. And you really have to decide based on your own know, investing strategies, your own philosophy, right? So how, how does it work at an investment firm or, or your edge of fund? Because like, do you have stakeholders? How do you propose your ideas? And second question, follow-up question on that. Is it a gradual shift of capital from, from one to the other? Or do you like, just cut it and you know, shift to a different strategy totally? I, I guess, you know, for most funds, uh, they would probably market themselves as maybe, you know, we are invested in deep value companies, traditional businesses and all, um, while maybe I'm a more of a growth fund, that, that's probably how you would market yourself from day one. Um, but from day one, we marketed ourselves as a value fund. We, we were just invested in companies that we deem of value. So when we realized that, hey, you know, what is of value has shifted, we just shifted. That there's no gradual shift or what. To me, it's when it's a mistake, we made a mistake in terms of the investment thesis or um, it doesn't make sense anymore to be invested in these kind of companies. It's not like, hey, shall we sell down 10% today, 10% tomorrow, and gradually we reduce our stake that way. If it's a mistake, we sell it out. Same thing we saw during COVID. You know, when Buffett invested in the four airlines, when he saw that it was a mistake, it's just completely, we are going to sell out of this industry because we made a mistake. Uh, there's no point trying to like, let, let's try to sell cope, a bit cope. here, recoup some <laughs> right. losses, and then recycle these um, to other industries. I, I find that, that that's a very uh, slippery slope. Things could just get even cheaper. It could not rec recover. Um, you are talking about more best case scenarios. Yeah. So, so that's for, for the fun. But uh, you do personally invest as well, right? Yeah, we do, you, I, we do manage our... I mean, I personally manage our own family assets as well. Ah, okay, okay. So do you see a difference in your own investing style as compared to managing the fund because it's well just different amounts and there's different objectives as well do you see a difference in the way you manage these two the objective is the same so the kind of companies we're buying it's exactly the same whether is it for the family or for the fund if you're buying different things that's not very ethical the only difference is the risk profile 
So for example, at, at the fund level, we do not use leverage at all. But at the family level, because we have credit lines, we have access to these kind of credit lines, we have cheaper cost of funding because of our collateral with the banks and all, we are able to get cheaper funding. It, it makes sense for us to actually use these funding because if we are not highly leveraged and you know, going into COVID, we were almost at zero debt. And because COVID happened, it made sense to actually take some amount of debt. End of the day, you know, Buffett may talk about how leverage is bad and all that kind of stuff. But he's just talking about leverage is bad for the masses who don't actually know how to use leverage. But if used wisely, you can actually make superior returns as well. And Buffett has actually used leverage as well, as much as he may say that leverage is bad. So because, you know, like I said, our balance sheet was clean, we have zero debt. It made sense to actually take some debt because it made sense to be um, using these cheap costs of funding. And, you know, let's say, for example, our Singapore dollar loan was about 0.8% all in. So it is cheap cost of funding to maybe, you know, be buying the Singapore banks. Because to me, back then, uh, when COVID actually happened, the Singapore banks was that win-win scenario I saw. Whether heads or tails, you still win. Because we borrowed Singapore dollars to buy the Singapore banks. And we actually have to borrow the Singapore dollars from the Singapore banks anyway. If, in terms of tails, if interest rates um, continue to trend downwards, of course, your banks will earn lesser revenue um, because interest rates is shifting downwards. But it, it means that our, our cost of funding is cheaper as well. But net-net, end of the day, the banks actually pay about 5 to 6% in dividends every single year back then at that price. So net-net, we were still positive. But assuming hits, if interest rate starts rising, naturally it means the bank's revenue will start trending upwards and the share prices will actually be trending upwards much faster as well. And naturally, you know, the, the share prices of the banks would be trending up faster than how interest rates can actually trend upwards. So heads or tails, these are the kind of scenarios that I'm talking about that you will actually still win. And we, we can be taking leverage at the family level. But of course, at the fund level, we weren't actually taking any leverage. Okay, I like this concept. Heads or tails, you still win. And you're using interest rate as an example, right? If interest rate rises, this is what happens and therefore you win and interest rate goes down, you win as well. So this is one way of looking at it. And earlier on, I asked you about your personal investing style versus your managing a fund because while most of our listeners listening to this podcast are retail investors, so I'm wondering what are the key takeaways they can take from this conversation that we just had about your strategies, about how you manage your fund. Like what do you think? Any advice for retail investors listening in? How can I apply the heads or tails I still win as a retail <laughs> investor? You know? uh, that's why I say that um, you know that heads or tails, taking leverage and all that kind of stuff is more applicable at the family level. I mean, we can actually be doing it at the fund level, but because at the fund level, um, we have many different investors with different risk profiles, it's much better that we just tell them. And you know, we are more conservative in that sense. We are not trying to be very, very aggressive. We just want return on capital and especially return off capital. And that's the reason why we say that we are long only. We don't actually use leverage to increase the returns in that sense. Um, we only do that at the family level. But if I have to give one advice to retail investors out there is that change is the only constant. Things will always be changing. You, you can't stop it. Investment world is like the business world. It's like a Darwinian jungle. It's the survival of the fittest. Either you stay constant and you become extinct at one point in time, or you adapt and survive in this new world. And that's the thing which I think was happening during COVID. 
because it was essentially splitting the whole economy into two. Either you you are part of this um, industry that is dying from COVID, and really these companies were really crashing and burning down. I mean, even till today, there are some businesses that are still affected by COVID. Companies like the travel who are actually in the travel industry in Singapore. There's no not really any inbound visitors. Close friend of mine who actually runs his own travel agency has actually told me for two years straight he has zero revenue. These are really really tough times, you know, companies within this sector is really burning. Whereas you have this other side of the economy that is thriving and you can see in the share prices, they were up 100%, 200%, 300%. What we learned about, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. It, it doesn't seem to apply to these kind of companies last year. All these SaaS names, e-commerce names, the share prices, um, it really looked like a vertical uh, upwards. So, so yeah, change is that only constant. You know, we have to actually adapt and learn, uh, shift our, our strategy and all that. It's not easy, but nothing really is easy. Um, I, I knew of people last year who said, you know, hey, you know, since I don't actually understand, I don't actually do anything. But is that really the best way forward? Sometimes, you know, the best way forward is really just doing something. And, you know, that's the same thing what um, the Federal Reserve did in the U.S., a lot of people are saying that, hey, you know, if you go crazy printing money, there will be detrimental effects. But at the same time, if they don't do anything, it's a confirmed guarantee that the economy is not going to survive if they don't do anything. So you might as well do something, take a chance, and it's a probability that you might either succeed or you might fail. Okay. Thank you, Tiling. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, no worries. Happy to share my thoughts. Hey, I hope you've learned something useful today and I truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconuts. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our socials, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description. If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. For more information, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead, stay tuned next week, and remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, and sustainable for all. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We have three questions that we ask every guest. So the first question would be, what is one of your core life principles? Um, it's probably what I just said just now. Change is actually the only constant. And you've elaborated on that. So that's a, a takeaway for our listeners as well. Yeah. What is uh, one piece of financial advice that you think should be shared more often? Um, I think one piece of advice is really on risk management. I, I find that people feel that, you know, I'm managing a smaller sum of money. So I should take riskier bets because I can actually survive from losing this amount of capital. For example, $10,000. I should go on full on risk instead of investing 10000 
into the stock market, I should put it in the highest risk, highest reward kind of asset, which is maybe cryptocurrencies, I don't know, um, to maximize my returns, you know, to, to gain that pot of gold. But if I lose my $10,000, I can survive that. I can recoup 10000 by working and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think that's the right mindset to have because ultimately, you know, if your 10000 becomes $1 million, are you going to be investing your $1 million the same way? So to me, risk management is something which most people don't think about. They, they, they just find that, oh, because I'm managing a smaller quantum, I don't need to care too much about risk management. Wait till, you know, when the sums get larger and all, then do I actually start thinking about risk management? And I find that this is something which is very underrated. No one really talks about risk management. People talk about everything else, you know, oh, business is good. Um, they, they don't ask that, that crucial question sometimes, I find. It's like during the S-chip saga in Singapore, a lot of the analysts back then were saying that, you know, we use very, very conservative estimates. And even using these conservative estimates, we, we are looking at at least 100% uh, upside potential. But the key question and the risk management side of things, no one actually asks is, is the cash for these Chinese companies even in a bank account? And, and that's the most crucial question, you know. You can do all your conservative estimates, but if the cash is not even in a bank account, then there's no point even talking about conservative estimates. So you think that risk management should apply at every level, no matter the amount of capital you have? Yeah. I mean, it's more of a mindset kind of a thing. I mean, at one point, you know, if you are $1 million, you, you might think that, hey, there's no end to it. You know, from 10000 you think it's a small amount. Wait till I hit a million. But when you hit a million, you know, people will always be, what's the next goal? I want to hit 10 million, 100 million. And when do you actually draw the line? Where, why is it 1 million do you draw the line? Why not 500000 or 200000 or $100,000? Where do you actually really draw that line? Okay, because the $10,000 all-in strategy is how some people make their fortune, right? But of course, it really depends. Yeah. But what you're saying is that if I were to paraphrase it in a different way, is it correct for me to say that if you don't have risk management at $10,000, you also might not have risk management at $1 million, $10 million? You, you might not because yeah. to me, investing is really a learning journey. And you, you start small, you know, you, you learn about diversification, good habits from you, there. you learn what the mistakes that you might make. You don't want to hit when you're a million dollars and you make a mistake that you should have actually made at $10,000 um, using the same strategy. Okay. Our last question for you today. What is one area of your life that you're giving additional focus right now? <laughs> uh, I probably would say that I'm trying to exercise more. Okay. You know, with COVID Is and all. Is it a COVID thing? <laughs> I, I do think it's a COVID thing. You know, you, you get so used to just staying at home. You don't actually have to go out that much. Um, even meetings are just done via Zoom these days. Yeah. So you don't actually have to really go out. And, you know, it makes you a bit lazier. You don't actually... Uh, slowly, you, you build up this habit of not really going out. You get lazy, not wanting to go out to exercise and all that. And, you know, habits takes about 31 days to form. And that's why I talked about um, the habit of using online platforms, the habit of going to use e-commerce platforms. It will stay because our lockdown took two months. And that's the reason why people's habits, behaviors actually start shifting. And, and yeah, so, so I mean, that, that's probably one area of my life I'm trying to look at. <laughs> Are you going to run or cycle? You know, cycling is a thing now. Uh, probably running. I running. mean, sometimes, you know, you. Uh, I mean, even in investing, we always look backwards. Like the past 10 years, what were the fundamental shifts that actually happened? Um, and there has been a lot of fundamental shifts. And, you know, sometimes you look back 10 years, the photos that keep appearing in your, you know, your feed and Facebook and all that, and you realize, well, you know, back then I still had a more defined jawline and all. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
right. All the best in your exercise and investment journey. Thank you. Thank you.